This morning we find ourselves in the Gospel of Matthew once again. May I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to this portion of Scripture, Matthew chapter 10. We will be really looking at the first verse, but I want to read to you verses 1 through 8 because we are really in a transitional stage here as we make our way through the Gospel of Matthew This morning, I'm really going to be setting up what I will be dealing with from the text in future weeks to come. So this morning, follow along as I read Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these, the first Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter into any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Before we look at this text, I want to share with you a few things just from my heart. As your pastor, I'm always struck with a great and profound sense of responsibility when I ascend to this sacred desk. I have such a great love for each of you. Few pastors are blessed with a church like this. Such a precious group of faithful and compassionate friends. But having said that, I am always concerned that we need to be reminded to be suspect of our spirituality. We live in an age that can lull us into a spiritual sleep. And I'm concerned for you, for each of you. And you probably will hear every Sunday an edge to my voice. There is a never ending sense of divine urgency that fires my furnace. And as a result, I'm constantly up here proclaiming and protecting the truth. And lately, I've been burdened for each of you and for many other Christians that I know that are in my life. And I believe this is a concern that the Holy Spirit has wrought within my soul to share with you, to have you examine your hearts this morning. So that we will guard ourselves against spiritual complacency. And frankly, this will be an important preface to the text that we will be looking at this morning as we examine some very fascinating aspects of the ministry of our Lord. But, beloved, I must remind you that we are living in a period of staggering apostasy, unprecedented apostasy. There is a constant, continual falling away from truth. And apostasy, if we understand it biblically, does not speak to some false religion that has no concern for for Christianity. But rather, it's a reference to those who are within the church who have once understood the truth 
and they might even have embraced it at some level, but it no longer holds for them the power that it once had. And so they begin to compromise and back away and create another form of truth over here. That's apostasy. And I fear at some level it's happening even in this church. Apostasy is a deliberate abandonment from a formerly professed position or a formerly professed allegiance or commitment. And of course, we know that apostates abound. You've heard that much from this pulpit. They're in the mass media. You go to our Christian bookstores. Most of the best sellers are apostates. You look at. Many churches and you see this Matthew seven, we've studied that where Jesus warned of the false shepherds that will disguise themselves as pastors and they will fill the pulpits and they will rise up from within the church. And so part of my role is to constantly warn you of the dangers of apostasy. Jude warns us in verse four that they will creep in unnoticed They will be ungodly men and women, sometimes people that aren't necessarily leaders within the church. But they will infiltrate the ranks of Christianity. We're warned of that over and over again. And in Jude 16, they're described as grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. But you, he goes on to say, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying in the last time. There shall be mockers. Following after their own godly lusts, these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly minded, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up. On your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And so, again, my calling is to constantly warn and guard and and feed, proclaim, protect the truth. And I'm concerned about apostasy, even in our church, even in my own life. Where subtle compromise begins to entice and move you away from the glorious principles of the word of God that would keep us in the path of divine blessing rather than distracting us and leading us into another path that might look like it parallels the true path. But in fact, is one that will lead us into the paths of divine chastening. A great example of this, of course, is that church in Laodicea. We read about that in Revelation chapter two and three. That particular church is the seventh of those churches. You might remember that they were actual historical churches, but they also illustrate various kinds of of churches throughout church history that will perennially exist and that particular church, that church of Laodicea, you might recall, was one That will depict the church just before the Lord comes. The church that we see today all around our country. Because I believe the Lord could come at any time and probably very soon. And there's a number of reasons why I would say that. I'll certainly not get into that. 
And I know many of you agree with that. But folks, if you think of that church, you may recall that God tells us that they were proud. They were wealthy. They had lots of activity in the church. And yet Christ was depicted as being on the outside, knocking on the door, wanting to come in. It was a Christless church. It was neither cold nor hot. It was just lukewarm, like many Christians today. Just kind of floating along in their Christianity, however they wanted to define it. Self-deceived hypocrites that made God vomit. I believe the institutional church today is precisely what that church of Laodicea was in that day. Asleep to the real issues of the calling of people to repentance and to the living of a holy life. And sometimes I fear that even in this congregation, there's a lack of a burning love for God. Sometimes a lack for a hunger for his word. Well, the gradual apostasy we are told in scriptures will continue through the church age. Second Timothy three warns us of that. We are told there that men and women will hold to a form of godliness. In other words, they'll look godly, although they have denied its power. We're told to avoid people like this. It says in verses five through seven of Second Timothy three that for among them are those who will enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And Jesus tells us that this apostasy will continue even through the tribulation, right up to the point where he comes. In fact, just before he comes, our Lord says in Matthew 24 and verse 12, and because iniquity or lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Friends, ask yourself, is that you? In fact, Jesus acknowledged that just before he will return, that there would really be very few genuine believers in comparison to the many that claim to know him. He asks rhetorically in Luke 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Indeed, he will find many churches, but beloved, he will find far fewer Christians. I continue to be amazed at how few Christians sacrifice anything in their life these days for Christ. How few really love him and faithfully want to serve him. How few people really pray. Folks, I mean really pray. How few people have a love for the word. Have, how few people have any strong convictions about holy living. Friends, we're in need of revival. And I don't mean some phony vaudeville type of thing where some salesman whip people up into some emotional frenzy and use maudlin stories and mood altering music so that they can stampede large crowds of naive and malleable people through the wide gates of easy believism. That's not what I'm talking about. But folks, I'm praying for this church and others for a great awakening like those that were in the past. Those mysterious outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Those times when through the faithful expository preaching of the word of God and earnest prayer, somehow the spirit of God 
caused a great and profound hunger to move across congregations. We read about that in the early days of our country. And my, how far we've slipped. When we read of the Puritans and the Great Awakening in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, for example, in 1734, he was preaching to his Northampton congregation in New England. And he describes how that suddenly the Spirit of God came sweeping over them. And he tells us in one of his works called The Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God. Here's what he says. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. The noise amongst the dry bones waxed louder and louder. The revival struck the hearts first of the young people and then of the elders all over the town. He went on to say that soon the taverns were empty. People had done with their quarrels, backbiting and intermeddling with other men's matters. End quote. See, folks, that was part of that great awakening where men were awakened to sin and awakened to the holiness of God. One such preacher of the great awakening was a man by the name of Samuel Davies. He was a son of a godly mother educated by a Baptist pastor, a man by the name of Abel Morgan. And Davies came to a rural location in Chester County, Pennsylvania. And he took a Presbyterian church there. And in 1739, he made this observation about the spiritual condition of those people. And by the way, this was just right on the forefront of the great awakening that the spirit of God chose to pour out amongst the people of our nation. Here's what he said. And I quote, the nature and necessity of the new birth was but little known or thought of in this church. The necessity of a conviction of sin and misery by the Holy Spirit, opening and applying the law to the conscience in order to a saving closure with Christ was hardly known at all to the most. He went on to say there was scarcely any suspicion at all in general of any danger of depending upon self-righteousness and not upon the righteousness of Christ alone for salvation. Well, he goes on to describe that for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit honored his faithful preaching. And about 16 years later, he reflected upon this revival that broke out in his church and many others. And he was preaching in Virginia in 1757. And he reflected upon this time of which I pray for this church and others. Here's what he had to say about 16 years ago in the northern colonies. When all religious concern was much out of fashion and the generality lay in a deep sleep in sin, having at best the form of godliness, but nothing of the power. When the country was in peace and prosperity, free from the calamities of war and epidemical sickness, when in short, there were no extraordinary calls to repentance suddenly. A deep general concern about eternal things spread through the country. Sinners started out of their slumbers, broke off from their vices and began to cry out, what shall we do to be saved? And made it their great business of life to prepare for the world to come. Then the gospel seemed almighty and carried all before it. It pierced the very hearts of men with an irresistible power. I have seen thousands at once melted down under it, all eager to hear as for life and hardly a dry eye to be seen among them. 
Many have since backslidden and all their religion has come to nothing or dwindled away into mere formality. But blessed be to God, thousands still remain shining monuments of the power of divine grace in that glorious day. Friends, that is the prayer of my heart for this church, that the Holy Spirit would visit each of our hearts afresh and would somehow stir the coals of of our zeal for righteousness into a blazing fire of spiritual revival. Spiritual revivals, you know, they can never be scheduled. If you look at them historically, you'll see that they are never called down by man. They are always somehow sent down by God in his own timing, in his own way. And such was that great movement that happened here and there in our great country in the 1700s. Another example of that phenomena is illustrated in the life of another pastor of that day, Pastor Timothy Johns. He pastored faithfully for 21 years in the middle colonies, and it was said of him that he was much with his people. And for 21 years, nothing out of the ordinary happened. He just faithfully exposited the word day in and day out, Sunday in and Sunday out. And then suddenly. On a Sunday. It was July 1, 1764. The Holy Spirit swept across his congregation. And here's how he described it. And I quote, the Lord Jehovah has rent the heavens and come down and the mountains are fleeing at his presence. There is something of this blessed work all around me. And then a historian of that day went on to write, and I quote, the lives of men and women who were formerly unconcerned were now marked by deep feelings of much anxiety as they awoke to a knowledge of the nature of sin and of the justice of God. And it is said that 94 people were added to the Morristown Church in that one year. Dear friends, for the unregenerate, the great awakening was a time when they were awakened to the reality of divine judgment that awaited all of those who were living in rebellion and in sin. For them, they smelled the smoke of hell and they somehow felt the heat of eternal torment. And the Spirit of God breathed into them and they began to get hold of divine grace and they were awakened from the grave of their spiritual death. And somehow they repented of their sin because of God's grace and they were regenerated and reconciled to a holy God. They were raised from their spiritual graves to walk in the newness of life as they confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord. Suddenly they saw, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And during the great awakening for believers like you and me, it was a time where men and women and boys and girls were suddenly awakened from spiritual lethargy. They, they, they were shaken from their carnal sleep and they were awakened out of the, the dangers of worldly preoccupations. They somehow saw the idols of their heart and they were awakened from spiritual and moral compromise. And suddenly they realized that God had been dethroned. They realized that they had lost their first love. And suddenly God ravished their affections with irresistible displays of his glory. And there was great revival. And folks, that's what we need in our hearts and in our lives. 
And how I long for each of you to restore the throne and the dominion of God in your hearts and in your souls, resulting in an intense desire to see more of the glory of Christ and a passion to serve him. Because, folks, nothing in life matters more than this. We only are here for a few short years. And that's what it's all about, serving Christ. Well, today we're going to see much about Jesus as we read about his ministry. But I, again, want to come to you and, and just say, you know, as we, as we look at these issues today, I pray that you will do so by, first of all, looking at your own heart. Because, friends, I fear that there is a spiritual lethargy that is swept across even this church. And one of the ways that I see it, and I know that your schedules are filled, but, oh, friends, how it grieves my heart to see so few of you show up here on Wednesday nights and pray. To be able to somehow come before God and to praise Him for what He's done and to petition Him for our families and for our neighbors who don't know Christ. You know, historically, Spiritual declines are always marked with an absence of prayer. That's usually the first thing to go. And then it will be marked by a lack of love among other Christians, and there will be an obsession with religious organizations and denominations and spiritual gurus, and there will be infatuations with all kinds of things apart from the glorious truths of the Word. And, of course, my heart aches as I constantly battle these things. I have to say that I, I just fear that I have seen in my lifetime the death of Christianity in our nation. And it grieves my heart. I've seen it in my own family. It, it, it in my church. So I know nothing more to say to you, dear friends, but to, child of God, get serious about God's authority in your life. And even as we look at some of the truths here this morning, so somehow see that life is far more than just about you. But somehow it revolves around understanding the glory and the majesty of Christ and what He has done for us. And so this morning... I pray that you will just purge your heart because, as the Lord has said, judgment is going to begin at the house of God. That's where it has to start. And before he comes, it will. And I fear that we are on the precipice right now of great persecution in the church. And so as I pour my heart out to you, I know nothing more to say than to say, friends... Let's examine our hearts and let's look seriously at what God has for us as we look at his infallible record here this morning.
there is much we can learn about God's strategy for ministry. Every few months or so, I get another I get another letter on how to grow your church, how to bring in the crowds. Some other guru who calls himself a pastor will publish another book on how to grow your ministry. But friends, when I look at the word of God, I see something very different. And I want to show you this morning. If I can capture myself here. I want to show you six things that I have seen from the ministry of Jesus that begin to flow even out of this first verse. As we understand the context of all that God is doing here. First of all, remember that Jesus has just expressed his compassion to the lost condition of the multitudes that were dogging him. He has said that they are distressed and they are downcast. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They have been ripped open, oppressed from the bondage of legalism. They've been deceived by self-serving false shepherds. And they were like mortally wounded men that were face down in the dirt. And so the first thing that we're going to see here this morning, if we want to understand a biblical philosophy of ministry that flows out of the ministry of Jesus, is first of all, we must see that the motive for ministry is a compassion for the lost. And I might say not just the lost, but also as my compassion oozes forth for me today, just a compassion for those who claim to know Christ but who live in spiritual lethargy. This should be the heart of every believer. You see, the church is not a place to promote health and wealth and prosperity. It's not a place to provide child care necessarily or recreational opportunities. The church is not some religious social club. But the church is the pillar in the support of the truth of God. And true ministry seeks to see sinners be reconciled to a holy God and flee from the wrath to come. And of course, Jesus has seen the desperate state of the people that are following him. And the Lord of the harvest reflects upon the harvest of judgment that is coming. And it causes his body to reel with emotion. He knows what awaits those who reject him. And so he tells his disciples, those learners that were just following after him, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So the first thing that we see as a principle for ministry is our motive must be compassion. Secondly, we see here in verse one that God chooses those who will lead his church. Notice here in chapter 10. The Lord of the harvest now is summoning 12 disciples. The word summon is in the original language is a very strong term. And it literally has the idea of of calling someone to oneself in order to confront them face to face with a very important issue. And in this case, these learners, these observers who, by the way, had been with him for about 18 months are now being summoned to him. He is going to commission them to be his apostles, as Luke 6, 13 tells us, which means those who are sent. These men are now going to be the the official representatives that God will commission to be sent forth to accomplish the mission of growing the church. They had first been called a saving faith and 
all except Judas Iscariot. And all of these men had been following him as learners. They were, the Greek says, mathetes. They were disciples. But now they were being called to an official internship, something very different, where they could be with the Lord and be tutored by the Lord constantly. Imagine what that would be like to be mentored by the incarnate God. So we see here as we look at the ministry of Jesus, some important things. We see the motive should be compassion and that God will choose his leaders. But also, thirdly, we know that these leaders must be chosen after much prayer. We know that from Luke 6 and verse 12, always committed to doing the Father's will. The Lord, we are told, chose these 12 men out of a long season of prayer. In that text, we read that it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And so we're told that by morning the father had communicated to the son who these men should be. And in verse 13, we are told that he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. 12, by the way, out of many who were following him. And then it says, whom he also named apostles. So, friends, we see that God in his sovereignty chooses those who will lead his church. In fact, later on in John 15, 16, the, the Lord reflects back on this time and he reminds them that you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. And so we want to keep in mind as we think of ministry that God is the one who places men in leadership. We read about that in Acts 13. The first few verses there, we read about it also in Acts 20 and 28. We see that God appoints men to lead the church. And it's important for us to remember in ministry that everything we do should be done through that vigil of prayer as we seek the Father's will. And folks, that's again why I just cry out to you as your pastor. Be here on Wednesday nights to pray. Yes, again, I know you're busy. I know you're tired. I know some of you come at other times. I know you can't come all the time. But folks, this has to be the heartbeat of the church. And many of us are weary as we watch the enemy continue to work in the lives of so many people in our community. And we need to pray corporately to pray. Well, we also see, fourthly, that true ministry will always seem counterintuitive. Let me explain what I mean by this. It's fascinating when you think about it, the divine strategy that God gave us for ministry makes no sense whatsoever from a human perspective. It's counterintuitive to human thought. Certainly it's at radical odds with the modern church growth movement, as we will see. Think about this for a moment with me. Imagine if the people of our day were allowed to be in the annals of heaven before God set into motion his creative plan and his plan of redemption. Imagine the looks on their faces when God said, listen, guys, here's how I think we're going to do this. First of all, what I'm going to do is send my son to earth as a baby. I want the incarnate God to humble himself as a little child. And I want him to be born in obscurity. I want him to be part of the most hated group of people 
on the planet, the people who will be the most persecuted all through redemptive history. I want you or I I want him to go and to be a part of a group that are living in self-righteous apostasy. And I want him to live a life in obscurity. I want him to have virtually no earthly possessions, no ministry headquarters, no ministry empire. And I want him to minister for three years. And I want him to have a message that is constantly offending the people. Now, can you imagine at this point what the people of our day would be saying? They'd be saying, you know what? This thing will never work. And then God goes on to say, you know, I I want him to wander around in about a 60 mile circle. I, I, I want him to attack the influential religious elite. I want him to expose their hypocrisy. I want him to never try to gain their support. I want him to spend time with the poor, the uneducated, the outcasts. The misfits, I, I, I don't want him to surround himself with celebrities that can open doors for him, but rather I want him to choose uneducated, untrained and in some cases unwanted social misfits to be his representatives. And I want all of them to preach a message that is so utterly ridiculous and so utterly offensive. That the countrymen will cry out for his blood. And then ultimately, I want him to die an ignominious and excruciating death on a Roman cross. Condemned for crimes that he never committed. Sounds like a great plan, doesn't it? But yet, folks. Jesus was the most influential man that ever lived. And you look and you see what God has done as he has built his church. Amazing limits that God placed on his ministry, yet this was God's design. Why? So that he gets the glory. Well, we also, as we look at just the ministry of Jesus, as we begin to set up what we're about to see over the next several months as we look at Jesus' private ministry, because what we're seeing here is a transition from public ministry to private, at least for a period of time. Next, what we see is that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. This would be number five if you're keeping the little list. Think about it. The ministry of strategy of the father for the son seems so odd. Just as as the Lord had been shaken to the core of his bones, as he looked out across the multitudes and and he wept and he grieved over their over their blindness And over their lethargy, wandering souls, wandering around in darkness. And he shudders to think of the wrath that awaits them lest they repent. Given the enormity of that problem, don't you think he would have chosen more than twelve? How about twelve hundred? Perhaps twelve thousand? But no, he chooses twelve. And one of them, a heretic, an unbeliever. And then think about it. They were ordinary men. He didn't choose the 
rabbis and the socially elite or the leaders. He chose uneducated, untrained, common men, as we will see as time goes on. They were hard headed. They were prejudiced. They had a lack of spiritual understanding. They were impetuous. They lacked humility. Remember that some of them later on are going to argue about who's going to be first and greatest in the kingdom. They struggled with fear. They lacked faith. They were immature, unreliable. In fact, they were really the most unlikely candidates to be divine representatives. And the only thing about them that we can see that was really unique was their lack of qualifications. But this was the father's choice. You know, this is just the kind of folks God loves to radically conform into his glorious image, right? By the way, can I can I comfort you here? I may be a bit hard on you here today in some ways because I love you so, but you know what? All of us can get discouraged in our ministry. All of us can look at our Christian life and think, oh, my, what a mess I've made of things. And yet, you know, isn't it wonderful that God and in his infinite love takes people just like you and just like me? And if we're available, if we want to, if we cry out to him and we immerse ourselves in the study of his word and begin to live consistently with it, he will begin to transform us and use us in magnificent ways. Even as he did these knuckleheads. Men who had left their fishing careers, their tax gathering, other pursuits to simply walk around with Jesus, following him from village to village. Remember, I told you that there was about three million people that lived in this area. They were listening like everyone else to what he preached. But now for reasons that God only knows, they become the sovereignly ordained emissaries of the kingdom of God. Twelve plain Ordinary men. Again, think about this as you think about ministry. He didn't choose the rulers or the rabbis, the Pharisees. He didn't go to the rich and to the famous and to the celebrities. By the way, folks, that is such a common misconception in the church today. Oh, if we could only get this famous person to come to Christ. Or if we could only get this celebrity to come to Christ. Oh, just think what God could do. You know, folks, that seldom, if ever, happens. And when it does happens, happen, it seldom produces fruit. It's not to say that it doesn't happen, but it seldom happens. You know, it's interesting, as Paul reminds us, there's not many mighty, not many noble. Paul even called himself a clay pot. 2 Corinthians 4 Verse four, it says that we have the treasure of the glorious gospel in earthen vessels, which literally is a reference to clay garbage pots that they used for things that you wouldn't even want to discuss. We have this glorious treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. Why? That the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And so when we look at the ministry of Jesus, we see that we, like him, should have, first of all, a motive of compassion for those who are in spiritual blindness and darkness. We must see that God is the one that chooses and we must do that out of great prayer. Anything we do in ministry must be bathed in prayer. And then we must also see that 
what we do in ministry is often counterintuitive. In fact, it's ridiculous in the eyes of the world. We see also, fifthly, that he uses ordinary men and women. And then sixthly, we see that depth produces breadth. Let me explain this. And I heard someone put it this way, that concentration produces multiplication. Think of this. Here we see the transition from public to private ministry, again, at least temporarily. Now we're going to see Jesus focusing on 12 men and mainly three out of the 12. We don't see him beginning now to launch a massive advertising campaign. We don't see some massive worldwide crusade, and I'm not saying that there isn't a place for some of those things. We don't see mega seminars being enacted, but we see that what God begins to do is to begin to go deep with a few and look at what the outcome has been. Counterintuitive. Concentration produces multiplication, but it may not be in our lifetime. One of my mentors, John MacArthur, said this many years ago, and I've, I remember it, it grabbed my heart, and it's always been really at the very core of my understanding of ministry. That if you will be concerned with the depth of your ministry, God will take care of its breath. That we are to be driven by excellence, not by success. That we are to be driven by quality, not by quantity. And yet the marketing philosophy, philosophies of the church growth movement are driven by an ambitious pragmatism. Where you find whatever works to bring in the crowds and friends, I would submit to you that there's a big difference between a crowd and a church. Anybody can draw a crowd, but it's altogether a different matter to build a church. People are consumed these days with getting as big as they can, as fast as they can. And that was never the model of Jesus. David McKenna wrote about self-styled messiahs, talked about how they were always megalomaniacs. And the idea here in the Greek is that they were maniacal for something big. And here's what he said, and I quote, Their sense of mission has no limitations short of conquering the world and conquering it now. At the slightest signal that their efforts are being frustrated, they usually respond with rage and madness, end quote. You know, the vast majority of mega ministries that I've studied, that I've watched, are like a $10 firework rocket that you buy down here at one of these tents for the 4th of July. They will rise quickly. They will draw a lot of attention. They'll make a great big bang and then they'll disappear. You look at some of the fads that we've had over just the past 10, 12 years, promise keepers, where is it today? Petered out. You look at all this stuff with like the prayer of Jabez. Remember when that came out? My goodness, they had everything but toilet paper with prayer of Jabez on it. 
Or is it now? You look at all this hubbub about the purpose driven church, which has some good principles and many others that are unbiblical. All these fads, they come and they go. And many times what happens, dear friends, is these things only last as long as the leader is there. And the legacy typically that those things leave is nothing more than a bunch of disillusioned people that are looking for the next thrill. The next big thing that's going to happen. Rather than humbly doing what Jesus did. Going deep with a few. You know, bottle rocket churches and ministries will fizzle out very, very quickly. And our model here at Calvary Bible Church is that we not be hung up with strategies and, and just come up with more activities and programs. And sure, you've got to have some of those things. The issue is not finding a better way to advertise. But folks, what God would have us do is preach the word when it's popular and when it's not. And my goodness, it's unpopular these days. And to intensely and precisely and with great depth pour our lives into one another. And certainly that is my passion for you. I'm committed to a lifetime here in this church. If it never gets any bigger than this, that's that up to God. That's not my concern. What God's called me to do is to take you deep. As deep as I can. You know, those who have had the greatest impact for the kingdom of God in the history of the world were those who went deep, not wide. They did not dig some shallow pond over a large area for everyone to see all of their accomplishments, but rather what they did, and often in obscurity and many times in anonymity, they would dig a spiritual well deep and tap it into the foundations of the great deep, those cisterns of divine truth that will perpetually nourish and never undry. I think of the works of John Calvin, one of the great systematizers of the Reformation. And to think how he continues to influence the church. In fact, the five solas that you see around this wall were really at the core of what he helped us to understand through the word of God. And it's staggering the number of theological volumes that he and others like him wrote to edify the church. Friends, over the years, there have been thousands of pastors, some of which I have read about today that maybe you've never heard of. Who have devoted their life to solid exegesis of the scripture and solid exposition of the word of God, always with their eye toward rightly dividing the word of truth, never on building some ministry empire. Jesus is our example, beloved, and I am convinced that if we are to stay the course of going deep in our study of the word and and, and, and we, we continue to try to plumb the depths of divine truth. And we not get sucked into this idea of, of quantity being more important than quality. And that somehow we've got to be successful more than excellent. And getting sucked into this idea that numerical growth is more important than spiritual growth. People, I'm convinced that maybe not in my lifetime. God will do what he has always done and he will build his church through you and through me. 
I have a great joy every week to come here on Tuesdays and to go back there in that room with a few children and a few young people at another class. And every week I have the opportunity of pouring my life into these small classes of children and youth. And I always think about this. What a privilege it is for God to give them to my care so that I could immerse them in the infinite truths of divine revelation. And who knows what God will do in multiplying his word through them. And every week through the email and through private discipleship, I have the joy of instructing and encouraging a number of you, warning you, exhorting you at times. On Tuesday nights, we have our SIT program. Every week I have the joy of taking a few men into the ocean of systematic theology. And on Wednesday nights, again, the privilege is mine to take a handful of faithful saints into the remote alpine meadows of Bible prophecy. And then here on Sunday mornings to be able to come to another small little group of hungry learners and take them on a pilgrimage of the Christian life. Who knows what God will do through all of that? I don't. But I know that's what he's called me to do. And then on Sunday mornings and on Sunday nights to open up this infallible record and say with boldness and divine authority, thus saith the Lord. Why the never-ending concentration on the deep truths of the Word of God? Simple. Because depth produces breadth. Concentration produces multiplication. Folks, this is how God will build His kingdom. And even though I may not see the fruits of this in my lifetime, we will see it in glory. Amen? So let's learn from Jesus' model for ministry and simply emulate what he did. If I can review it quickly as we close, let's all be motivated with a deep passion for the lost, a compassion for the destiny that awaits them as they continue to live in rebellion against God. And let's also have a compassion that brings us before our face as we look at our own wretched spiritual condition. Folks, we are so phony and so shallow. And then secondly, let's know that God is going to choose those those whom He will call to lead His church. And let's choose our leaders and our ministries in all that we do. Let's seek to do as the Lord did and seek the Father's will and great prayer. And then we can recognize that true ministry, what God calls us to do as a church, will always seem counterintuitive to our fleshly penchants to pursue the consumer-driven methods of modern pragmatism to get big quick. And then, folks, let's remember that God, in His mercy and His grace, He chooses common, ordinary, sinful folks like you and like me to accomplish His eternal purposes to glorify Himself. And then finally, let's remember that If we will be concerned with the depth of our ministry, and I don't mean just here at the church, I mean fathers with your wives and with your children, mothers with your children, even as you love your husband, if 
we will be concerned with the depth of our ministry, God will multiply it and he will take care of its breadth. And as soon as you get consumed with the breadth, you will abandon the depth and eventually you will pay the price of a superficial, phony Christianity that is indicative of our institutional church today. May I close with this poem that came from my heart early this morning as I was thinking of these things. Holy Spirit, take my soul into thy ocean deep. Immerse me in thy wondrous truths, my heart thy word to keep. Make me shun those shallow shores where I tend to play and summon me into the depths where you would have me stay. Oh, would that I could know you more in ways far deeper still. So in your presence and in your presence stand amazed and know your precious will. Deepen me, O oh Lord, I pray that I may see your face and take my heart where I can feel the joy of your embrace. Let's pray together. Father, it is so obvious as we just reflect upon the ministry of our precious Lord Jesus Christ that we can so easily get sucked into all kinds of things that look right and they seem right, but oh God, they're so radically opposed to what you would have us do. Father, how I pray that you would move upon our hearts with a great sense of revival. God, I pray that somehow you would stir our affections again for the holiness of God and for righteous living. God, I pray that you would just bring us to a point where we long to be in your presence and the sweet communion of prayer. And God, I pray that you will bless this church as you have already. And Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us. But oh God, how we want more of you. We want to go hard after you. And we want to wrestle with you so that you will give us your blessing. We want more and more of your blessing, God, that more people will come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And more of us that know you will love you in ways that glorify you and bring great joy to our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us this day. I pray all of this for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.